I'm Peter Adamson, and you're listening to the History of Philosophy podcast, brought to you with the support of the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode will be an interview about philosophical Sufism with Mohamed Rostam, who is Associate Professor of Islamic Studies at Carleton University. Hi, Mohamed. Hello, Peter. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I guess the obvious first question here is, what do we mean when we talk about philosophical Sufism? Obviously, it must have some relationship to philosophy on the one hand and Sufism on the other hand, but I suppose maybe it's a more specific idea than Sufism in general. It's some specifically philosophical kind of Sufism. Is that the idea? Uh, yes. Well, um, uh, the term philosophical Sufism is uh, somewhat problematic uh, because it can take in Sufis or Muslim mystics who were uh, well-trained in philosophy, the formal discipline of philosophy, and as well as philosophical theology in the later period. And it can also relate to authors who had a penchant for philosophical modes of expression, but who were not really philosophers in any way at all. So with that in mind, we can kind of say that philosophical Sufism broadly refers to the theoretical or doctrinal attempt on the, on the part of Sufis to articulate some of these you know, more central topics in Islamic thought pertaining to things like cosmology, ontology, theology, so on and so forth, but within the framework of what we can call uh, their spiritual vision. This means that at minimum, what we encounter in philosophical Sufism a more concrete kind of articulation of any given abstract uh, philosophical or theological problem or position. Um, while it's true that philosophical Sufism and philosophy are conceived here from one perspective as two sides of the same coin, I would not wish to indulge in the simplistic characterization uh, that we sometimes find uh, that says that philosophical Sufism is simply philosophy clothed up in mythic form or, or symbolic garb or something like that. Uh, philosophical Sufism presents itself by virtue of its emphasis on the lived and the uh, concrete understanding of revelation as, if you like, a kind of improved version of philosophy or philosophical theology, uh, but one in which the philosophical vision and uh, uh, revelation are kind of complementary and are articulated in something like a highly symbolic form. Uh, now, often philosophical Sufism refers to the school of Ibn Arabi in particular, so there's that added nuance there. And uh, this is because an increasingly systematic and more philosophical understanding of Ibn Arabi's own teachings eventually come to take center stage in the writings of his followers, particularly Hunwe, who was, of course, his uh, stepson and his uh, most important direct disciple. Thus, the term school of Ibn Arabi uh, describes a particular approach largely colored by the thought of Ibn Arabi himself to the major philosophical and religious issues which confronted medieval Islamic thought. But it should also be noted that um, the term normally used in Arabic and Persian to characterize the perspective of an Arabi on the one hand, but also kind of philosophical Sufism more generally is Irfan Nazari or Persian Irfan Nazari, uh, which is normally translated as something like, you know, theoretical Sufism or even speculative Sufism, I guess, would work. This is a fairly helpful designation in terms of what's happened in philosophical Sufism, conceived in the widest possible sense, but with the caveat that by the term theoretical Sufism, we mean here the wedding of philosophical activity and, and lived practical aspect of Islamic spirituality. There are thus, if you like, um, you know, no armchair 
philosophical Sufis and classical Islamic civilization, if you will. So it sounds like, in a way, we could think about philosophical Sufism either as part of the history of philosophy in the Islamic world or as part of the history of Sufism in the Islamic world, and either one would be legitimate. Yes, on, on one level, this is, this is correct, especially as we uh, move uh, further into the East and down the historical unfolding of the Islamic intellectual tradition, where the lines start to get blurred in so many different places, philosophers of a, you know, Aristotelian kind of peripatetic bent, now writing as illuminationists on the one hand, and then engaging people like Rumi and Ibn Arabi on the other hand. So that kind of ambiguity, I think, that you're drawing on, or the kind of universal applicability of this this term, really, it's kind of symptomatic of, of the more eclectic nature of the Islamic intellectual tradition in the post-Avicennan phase of Islamic history. So you've already mentioned in passing the most important figure in the history of philosophical Sufism, and maybe the second most important, Ibn Arabi and his follower Kunawi. Do you think it would be fair to say that Ibn Arabi was the first philosophical Sufi or the first to do philosophy within Sufism? I would, I would not uh, say that. On, on, the, on the one hand, as the tradition develops later, it has, of course, it's greatly indebted to him. But, uh, you know, we find that Ibn Arabi is really following an intellectual trend within Sufism that largely was made popular by probably by Ghazali's time, especially by Ghazali, um, in which, of course, a greater attention is paid to issues in cosmology and ontology primarily, but now within the framework of, of Sufi discourse. So one of the key figures in the integration of philosophy and Sufism, someone who was actually like a younger Andalusian contemporary of Ibn Arabi, was Ibn Sabin, uh, who was much better trained, actually, than Ibn Arabi in the formal discipline of philosophy. Probably the single figure who uh, was the most pivotal in terms of the harmonization of philosophy and Sufism. And when we can really start speaking about a kind of philosophical Sufism as such, is that the uh, great Persian Sufi martyr, Ayn al-Qudat Hamadani, who died in 1131 of the Common Era, and who was, you know, was put to death by the Seljuk government uh, at the age of 33, ostensibly on charges of heresy. Uh, not only was Enokuzat uh, important because he was the student of Ahmad Ghazali, Ghazali's famous younger brother, who himself was a major figure in the Persian world, uh, but he was also very well read in Avicenna and, of course, uh, Ghazali himself. He thus brings together over a century before Ibn Arabi two really important strands in Islamic thought, kind of like a careful synthesis between philosophy, theology, and mysticism in a manner which is more explicit than Ghazali in terms of his reliance on philosophy, but which conscientiously seeks to address certain perceived limitations in Avicenna because of his uh, non-committal stance on mysticism. So Ayn al-Qazad kind of stands as a seriously overlooked figure in this later Islamic intellectual tradition, as someone who, you know, for the first time articulates a number of concepts that would uh, become kind of stock expressions and ideas in both Persian and Arabic language Sufism. For example, you have the concept of Muhammadan reality, the Haqiqa Muhammadiyah, which after Ayn al-Qazat, as far as I could see, and particularly uh, actually in Ibn Arabi and his followers, it really takes center stage. But the idea we find it in Ayn al-Qazat explicitly, um, the Muhammadan reality is identified with uh, the first intellect of Neoplatonic Islamic cosmology. 
there is, uh, in fact, some kind of indication in Ana Kozat's main theoretical work in Arabic. He wrote pretty much all of his works in Persian, but he has one Arabic book called Zubdat al-Haqaiq, or The Quintessence of Reality. And uh, if we read between the lines there, it seems that even Ibn Arabi's most unique doctrine of the nature of the divine names may have, at least in part, been influenced by Ana Kozat, but that whole question uh, remains to be answered in further investigation. Okay, that's really interesting. So it sounds like Ibn Arabi is not coming out of a void in terms of the effort to integrate philosophy with Sufism. He's rather responding to something that was already an ongoing process. Yes. And it's, I think it's also interesting, by the way, that Avicenna had, was already central at this very early stage of philosophical Sufism. And that's something we'll see uh, carrying on through the later Sufi tradition. Yes, indeed. So, to what extent would you say that Ibn Arabi is actually doing philosophy in a systematic way? I mean, if we're, I mean, I, I've covered him already, right? So, there's clearly a lot of philosophical ideas in Ibn Arabi, but he writes these incredibly long, sprawling discussions of all sorts of things, right? And uh, really, from what I've read, it seems like usually attempts to cobble together a philosophical system from Ibn Arabi, mm -hmm. have to take text from here and there, right. bring them together, and then do a, quite a lot of interpretation. Right. So do you think that's a, is, that a, is that unfair, or do you think that's basically right, that he's not a systematic thinker, but that he has philosophically interesting things to say unsystematically? Yeah, I, I would. I think that's a, that that's actually an excellent characterization. Um, yeah, what makes Ibn Arabi, of course, so interesting is that, uh, as you've noticed, I'm sure, in, in reading him, um, you know, the, one of the things that jumps out is that there isn't a, a, like a direct kind of engagement with the discipline of philosophy. In fact, we don't even have a record of him having ever having read Islamic philosophy. I mean. He mentions, uh, you know, he never mentions Avicenna, for example, explicitly. Uh, but as you've demonstrated in your previous podcast, Ibn Arabi says that he met Averroes, and his writings do evince on one level a deep familiarity with the hosts of philosophical terms and concepts. But, you know, the likeliest place Ibn Arabi would have learned of these was, was through his formal training in Kalam, or philosophical theology. Of course, he was very well versed in Mutazilite and Ashrite thought. And uh, given the fact that that's not such a surprise anyway, because Islamic theology was thoroughly Avicennaized by Ibn Arabi's time, we're thus not surprised that, you know, his ontology, its broad outlines, is even quite Avicennan. That, that was standard fare in Islamic theology by Ibn Arabi's time, of course. So Ibn Arabi's not technically speaking a systematic thinker, so you're, I, you're correct definitely to say that. And I'd say that he's not systematic in that he does not try to, like, fit things neatly into an ordered worldview. He continuously, you know, when he'll refine his position, he'll affirm concepts from one different and even antithetical angle on one point, and then he'll go on later to deny it from another point. In fact, this is why, one of the reasons why Ibn Arabi, in early modern scholarship, was characterized as a madman. And, um, and even today, you'll have people call him, I remember, uh, at, least, at least one book has been written, <laughs> which tries to demonstrate how Ibn Arabi was kind of like a proto-postmodernist. Of course, there, there is a certain degree of coherence in Ibn Arabi's worldview as well. I wouldn't say a certain degree, I'd actually say a great degree of coherence, but it's far from being systematic in any real sense of the term. I mean, sometimes in the middle of a sentence, uh, in one of his books, he'll insert a parenthetical comments, he'll say something like, you know, the current topic under discussion would actually have come before the topic that preceded this discussion. 
But then he'll tell us that his ordering of the material is a result of divine unveiling or kashf, and thus is not the result of his own intellectual efforts at systematizing. So the kind of anti-systematic spirit, if, if we can call it that in Ibn Arabi's writings, uh, and indeed the vast ocean of you know symbolism, as you mentioned, visionary experiences, arcane kind of mysterious references, that was clearly imbibed by Qunawi, interestingly enough. And Qunawi was, of course, very much a philosopher in, in a way that Ibn Arabi was not. And so Ibn Arabi trains Qunawi, he's his stepson, and and, uh, and and the same individual ends up becoming so so different in so many ways from Ibn Arabi. I mean, Qunawi, you know, we have, for example, a handwritten copy in his own handwriting of uh, Suhrawardi's Hikmat al-Ashraq, Philosophy of Illumination, and he initiates, of course, a, a very serious correspondence with Nasiruddin Tusi after having read Tusi's already famous commentary upon Avicenna's Ishara. So, Qunawi represents a unique turning point in the history of philosophical Sufism in a way that Ibn Arabi doesn't, because we have here for the first time a first-rate philosopher, a theologian, but somebody who's trained by none other than Ibn Arabi himself, and he's got kind of a foot in the peripatetic and Ashraqi traditions, and he's also, for better or worse, uh, we can call him an Akbarian or someone who belonged to the so-called school of Ibn Arabi. And one of his own writings are quite different from Ibn Arabi's often in terms of, you know, their, their modes of expression, their form, and even to some extent their, their content. Uh, they're far more systematic, logical, uh, they're ordered, they're less, if you like, uh, Baroque in style. And there's an element of the visionary there, but uh, we now encounter a visionary who kind of crafts Sufi discourse to sound more logically rigorous and uh, and more philosophically inclined in terms of the language, too. It can be certainly be said that Qunawi is the single individual most responsible for the more reified kind of abstract manner of expression that characterizes the school of Ibn Arabi. And, you know, he intended to emphasize, as did every major follower in his in the school after him, especially uh, Qaysari, Dawud al-Qaysari, he wouldn't necessarily have given pride of place to certain elements of these, uh, uh, certain aspects of Ibn Arabi's thought, uh, whereas Qunawi does. And um, in many ways, this is interesting because Qunawi, he's commenting on, 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 in many ways, what is important or what he finds to be important in Ibn Arabi's own articulation of his vision of things. And Qunawi is necessarily leaving out a lot of key kind of mythological, cosmological discussions you find in Ibn Arabi and things that Ibn Arabi would say over 30, 40 pages in the Futuhat. Qunawi, you know, he'll, he'll have a, he'll have a one page dense explanation of what's going on there. And in a language that it, I think his intention is to really speak to audiences who, whose ears, so to speak, were not as well trained as his were in understanding his stepfather. Um, so, right, so sort of Ibn Arabi for dummies. <laughs> yeah, in many ways, a kind of dumbed-down version of Ibn Arabi. In fact, a teacher of mine once said to me, you know, we should stop calling it the school of Ibn Arabi. We should just call it the school of Qunawi because uh, it's it's largely, you know, like the, the, the all the followers after Qunawi or after Ibn Arabi, they're in one way or another influenced by Qunawi. And he's really seen as like kind of like the filter to interpret Ibn Arabi. Even Jami, the famous uh, poet, a uh, Persian poet who died in 1492, who was very much a follower of the school of Ibn Arabi. In one of his books, he says that if you if you want to understand Ibn Arabi, you can only do it through reading Qunawi. So you kind of have this acknowledgement, even into the 15th, 16th century, that this person is really the prism 
through which Ibn Arabi is to be interpreted. So let me ask you about a couple of the philosophical issues that seem really central, I think, both for Ibn Arabi and Kunawi. Um, and the, uh, of course, they're both going to have to do with God and God's relationship to the world, since it doesn't get more central than that. And maybe we can go straight to what might be the most obvious worry that someone could have about these philosophical Sufis, which is that they seem to be describing the created universe as nothing but a manifestation and maybe an illusory manifestation of God. And so this might make you think that they're some kind of monists. In other words, they actually think only God exists, or maybe they're pantheists. In other words, they think that everything is God. Do you think they can be defended against these charges? Uh, now, that's a trick question, uh, in a sense. Um, uh, see, the, the easiest way to, to reply to your question would be to say yes, and, and since there are plenty of passages, in, our, in Ibn Arabi in particular, that can be read as exclusively a kind of form of monism or pantheism or panentheism, or, or even as uh, something that brings together, you know, like uh, one or all of these isms, like pantheistic monism or something like that. Uh, yet the problem here, as I see it, really has to do with whether these kinds of terms, uh, reductive as they must necessarily be, can, can really do justice to Ibn Arabi's vision, which stresses in, in the same breath, really, oneness and unity, but there's alongside that multiplicity, otherness, and even relationality. So let's take, for example, uh, the question of pantheism. Does Ibn Arabi say that there's an essential identity or some kind of identity with God in the cosmos? Yes, he certainly does speak like this, and that, that was enough, of course, to drive Ibn Taymiyyah mad. I mean, he really, he liked Ibn Arabi to a point, but after a while, he just, he just lost, I think he just stopped being patient with him. <laughs> and then he decides to, you know, refute him and call him uh, uh, an incarnationist and all kinds of things, or someone who... He was an ittihadi, someone who didn't really distinguish between the creator and the creature. Ibn Arabi would tell us that that does not in any way explain the entire picture. So while he'd say, yes, that that is true, God and the cosmos are one or something like this, um, God as identified with the world or, or being in the world or, or part of the world, he'd say, bespeaks God's givenness or his revealedness or manifestness in the cosmos which points up to what he called his uh, imminence, or tashbih. And at the same time, Ibn Arabi places just as much, even, even more actually, emphasis on how the cosmos is not God in any sense of the term. How God is so utterly beyond and distinct from the world, and stands above it uh, by virtue of his inaccessibility, or, or hiddenness, or non-revealed face, if you like. And that points up his transcendence, or his tanzi. So Ibn Arabi commonly refers to the cosmos as as he, not he. Huwa la huwa, he, not he. Uh, and that does away with uh, the kind of simplistic either-or kind of scenario in which the explanation of the cosmic situation and God's relationship to it tries to, you know, trap trap God. And is, it, is it like this or is it like that? The huwa la huwa seeks to really retain both. I thus be very cautious to use any of these terms, pantheism, monism, so on and so forth, if, if we were to use them, we'd have to add a great degree of qualification. And by the time these qualifications can be made, you know, Ibn Arabi's, if you want to say he's a monist, sure, but then all the other stuff, the very terms in question 
would would then really not carry much weight because we'd have to add so many caveats and so many um, explanations and so many we'd have to really gloss these terms that they really stop they just lose much of their significance so i mean from this perspective even even a, a term that that is used uh, often to explain the perspective of ibn arabi and his followers uh, or the oneness of being even that phrase i mean it's it's something that ibn arabi doesn't he doesn't use the term himself um and it only becomes you know a technical term uh, three or four decades after his death but that term also it has certain major limitations uh, to it um because it can it can be perceived as you know emphasizing only the he aspect of the he not he formula and that's certainly how ibn taymiyyah understood the term and uh, and many other later detractors of Ibn Arabi as well. Uh, for example, Sheikh Ahmed Sirhindi, the famous uh, Indian Sufi, who died in 1624. It seems like what you're saying is basically that Ibn Arabi gives us this uh, interesting dialectical idea where the world is both God and not God. Yeah. And uh, so it would be overly simplistic to just take one side of this polarity. But on the other hand, I, I mean, as philosophers... We're probably not too happy with someone saying, well, the solution is to just contradict yourself all the time. And so it seemed to me, uh, and this is something I talked a bit about in the episode on him, but I wanted to get you to say something more about it. It seemed to me that one of the most promising moves he makes to s explain this position without just saying, you know, P and not P are both true is to describe the world in terms of divine attributes or the names of God, yes, because it seems like a name plausibly is both in a sense the same thing as the named thing, and in a sense not the same as the named thing. But on the other hand, it's hard to understand how something like a name could metaphysically be the same as the created universe. So do you think the point he's trying to make there is that more of an analogy? So is he saying that created things relate to God the way that names might relate to the bearer of the name or is it actually that we are literally the names of god as created things it, this is this this too is a trick question um you know ibn arabi his his most common way of speaking about what the names uh, are uh, or really what, uh, what they're what they're not is by um speaking them as relationships so this is something that he does which um seems at least from from one perspective, quite revolutionary in the history of Islamic thought, because, I mean, the way uh, you know, we speak about the divine names in in uh, classical Islamic theology uh, was to was to maintain that they somehow inherit in God or God's essence, what they called qaima uh, bidatihi, but not in a way that kind of gave them independent ontological status. Uh, such that they could be said to be super added to it. So for many medieval Muslim theologians and, and presumably some philosophers, the objective kind of ontological status of the divine names was never really uh, called into question. It was a given, even if their modality could not be easily understood or explained. And when Ari comes in the scene and, and he, he vehemently rejects this common type of picture of the divine names, uh, he says that the divine names do not inherit in God in any way and and, and he, he says that they're not ontological entities, which is like a, his, one of his main points, and he really tries to explain things for, from that perspective. He says they're, they're not umur wujudiya, or ontological things. Uh, so instead he says that they are, uh, technically speaking, relationships, nisa, between you know, what we can call God as, as revealed or manifest, 
and the objects of, of God's knowledge that do enter into concrete existence. So what Ibn Arabi uh, and the later tradition called loci of self-disclosure or manifestation, madahir um, in Arabic. So the divine names come about as a result of God's self-disclosure or manifestation, and uh, they thus make the God-world relationship for Ibn Arabi possible. Um, yet, uh, the cosmos, it's, it's nothing other than a conglomeration of the divine names, we can say, as displayed through the existentiated aspects of God's knowledge. So, the universe is, is impregnated ultimately with the divine attributes. And the very multiplicity in the cosmos, therefore, as we see it, because it manifests, the attributes obviously point to, to the divine names. So, by the same token, uh, since the divine names are relationships for Ibn Arabi and not actual ontological entities, the multiplicity in the cosmos is in actuality not any real kind of plurality. So, this kind of move that Ibn Arabi is making here, where he's, he's emphasizing their reality on one level and then they're and ultimately because they're relationships, they're ultimately unreal, uh, has, you know, posed the, the greatest, I think, philosophical challenge for his later interpreters. How do we understand these names? Because the names, they allow for multiplicity to emerge, and um, at the same time, they're paradoxically the very reason for the world's relative unreality. So actually, I find that very helpful philosophically, because, I mean, if the names really denote relationships or relations, it does seem like a relation is a real thing without being an entity in its own right, which is kind of the what he wants, right? Yes. So let me ask you something rather different now, um, just about the later historical influence of Ibn Arabi. Um, and actually, maybe we can start with a contemporary of Kunawi, namely Rumi, who's may maybe the most famous Sufi, even more famous than Ibn Arabi, because of his uh, uh, poetry and uh, the popularity of his uh, literary outputs. These two were friends, Kunawi and Rumi, were friends. They're even buried near each other in Konya. Uh, and it seems a little bit hard to wrap our minds around, right? So Kunawi is, as you were saying before, systematic, even sort of technical uh, approach to Sufism. Rumi, this kind of ecstatic poet. So how do we reconcile two such different authors as being two outgrowths of the same Sufi tree, as it were? Right. Well, that's um, you know that's uh, again another another uh, per very very important question. Um, we there's there's a really nice anecdote, uh, and there are all kinds of anecdotes about about uh, in which Qunui figures, you know. But this one in the later tradition, it tells us that one day Qunui and and Rumi are sitting together in Konya, and one of Rumi's students comes up to him and asks him a question that had been bothering him, and Rumi gives him in characteristic fashion. A couplet in Persian, and and the student's happy, and he walks away, and he's he's very uh, pleased with his answer. So, one of we turns to Rumi, and he says to him, "How is it that you can make such difficult ideas seem so simple?" And to this, Rumi responds, he says, "How is it that you can make such simple ideas sound so difficult?" <laughs> so, <laughs> what is important to keep in mind here uh, is that neither Rumi nor one we uh, saw a problem with each other's different modes of expression. I mean, Rumi's thought evinces some of the theoretical, philosophical tendencies which characterize Konui. I mean, Rumi was a Maturidi theologian also. Um, but Konui's thought also evinces some of the more poetic tendencies that we find in Rumi. And judging from the plain sense of Rumi's reply to Konui, he probably did think that, that Konui was 
unnecessarily complicating things, if you like. So having said that, there, there is a caveat here that we need to introduce, at least where Rumi is concerned. Uh, he's often seen as kind of being an anti-intellectual or anti-philosophical person. I mean, and there's ten, plenty of verses in his poetry to corroborate that kind of a position. Uh, the most common verse, uh, surely, is the one in which it says, he says that the, the leg of the philosophers is wooden, a wooden leg is terribly unsturdy. But one uh, contemporary scholar, at least uh, at least one that I've seen, emphasizes here that Rumi doesn't say the philosophers don't have a leg to stand on. He says that they do, but that it's just wooden. So it's not enough to allow them to, in Rumi's language, you know, fly up to the heavenly empyrean. So in order to do this, Rumi would emphasize love. And uh, that's, of course, the, the thing that he's known best for. But I get the feeling that Kunumi would not necessarily disagree. I think that ultimately they, they, they you know, see their, their goal as essentially similar, even if their modes of expression and intellectual uh, types really uh, were not the same. Maybe we could even say that, in a sense, they take on two different sides of Ibn Arabi's thought, because obviously Ibn Arabi is full of poetic imagery, um, and also, you know, there's the earlier sort of tradition of love poetry and Sufism. Uh, so Rumi is taking that on, and uh, Kunawi is taking on the more technical, philosophically influenced aspects of Ibn Arabi. Yes. And how how appropriate that he was uniting these two apparently contradictory tendencies in himself. Yes, yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, just one last question, uh, looking ahead a bit to where we're going in future episodes. Obviously, Sufism has this massive influence across the Islamic world, really down to the present day. But can you say something a little bit more specifically about philosophical Sufism? So what sort was the kind of geographical spread of philosophical Sufism? I mean, obviously, we've been talking about um, people who wrote in Persian, as well as Arabic. So certainly there's this philosophical Sufi tradition in Persia. What about, for example, in India or elsewhere in the Islamic world in the, let's say, the early modern period? Uh -huh. Right. So uh, what, what's what's particularly interesting here is that, uh, like you said, the, uh, you know, the philosophical Sufism or f Sufism of a more kind of theoretical type uh, really spreads throughout the, the, the eastern lands of Islam like, like wildfire. I mean, you have... Uh, you know, this is a phenomenon for at least over the next uh, 500 years. You have, you know, people in the Ottoman period, for example, writing in some sometimes Persian, but often Ottoman Turkish, like Ismail and Qaravi, who's uh, directly bringing together Ibn Arabi's thought. And actually, he was a commentator on Rumi too. And the Ottoman world was so vast that you have authors in that universe who belonged to, you know, who lived in places like today will be Bosnia, Turkey, Syria, so very, very vast uh, geographical expanse. Of course, Persia and uh, Central Asia. In India, where the school of Ibn Arabi in particular had a very important uh, second wind, if you like, uh, the writings there were tended to be in Persian because most Indian Sufis in the later period wrote in Persian, in Arabic and Persian, or even like an Arab Persian. And um, there, the aforementioned uh, uh, Sheikh Ahmed Sir Hindi, he was very important for the, to, in, in, at least responding to Ibn Arabi, even though he wasn't necessarily always on board with his central thesis. Um, uh, Shawwali Allah Dahlawi was a major figure also who 
uh, was working in the Indian context and who had a very important role to play in bringing Ibn Arabi's thought and bringing philosophical Sufism into something like a more mainstream intellectual uh, discourse because he was a very well-respected scholar who one of the ulama class as well. So India's case is interesting. You have many other minor figures in India um, Khaja Khord and uh, Mubaraz Allah, uh, people like this, all of whom their writings really evince a very deep kind of penetration, if you like, of the central tenets of the school of Ibn Arabi, and who, uh, like Qunawi and like, like his later followers, all try their hand at systematizing uh, this worldview. And then and what, what happens in India is you have many, you know, practical Sufi manuals written by Sufi masters, you know, guides of how to get there, so to speak, but which conscientiously engage uh, the school of Ibn Arabi. One of the one of the most interesting later developments in which philosophical Sufism has uh, yet another sphere of influence is actually in China, which is quite surprising. I mean, research into this is only being done today in a more in a more sustained fashion. But you know, by the 17th century, you have very important Chinese ulama, Chinese scholars, Wang Dayu, Lu Ji, people like this, who. Uh, in order to attempt to explain Islam to their Chinese counterparts, most of whom were new Confucians, they they drew on this, the writings of Ibn Arabi and his followers, usually through Persian translation. Um, but they did so by crafting the Chinese language now to speak the language of Neo-Confucianism. So you have uh, Chinese Muslim authors drawing on Ibn Arabi's ideas, but recasting them in Chinese and in such a way that a new Confucian could kind of understand it, and also some of their Buddhist colleagues as well. And that's a trend that in many ways um, characterized the later intellectual life of the Chinese Muslim, Muslim Chinese. Uh, in many ways, it's also symptomatic of what's happening in North America and Europe in the 20th century and even into now the 21st century, where you have many authors who, for one reason or another, espouse the cause of Ibn Arabi or the school of Ibn Arabi or philosophical Sufism or the wedding of philosophical Sufism and who uh, seek to remold even the English language, for example, to speak these things or French. So this, that's the influence of the school of Ibn Arabi on Sufism proper. But it also has a very important sustained influence on the discipline of Islamic philosophy as well. And this is most clearly seen, of course, in Mullah Sadra, the writings of Mullah Sadra. The entire school of Isfahan, uh, right into the, again, the 20th century, even, even until today, you have many authors in Iran who are followers of Mullah Sadra or espouse his views, but who have a vested interest in Ibn Arabi. So in Mullah Sadra, you have... The, the wedding of several different uh, strands of Islamic thought, uh, the Shiite theology, of course, uh, very deep engagement with the philosophical tradition, Mosadra's respondents, or Havari, obviously, and, um, and he takes Ibn Arabi extremely seriously, uh, to the point that he's even himself accused at some points in his career of being uh, too pro-Ibn Arabi or too pro-Sunni. So all of these trends, if we look at them together, in terms of the geographical dispersion of the tradition. We have a very, very wide expanse in which Ibn Arabi's ideas and the systematization and articulation of his ideas uh, go into so many different uh, modes, so to speak. You have them in practical manuals. Now they're in Chinese, speaking Confucian Chinese. They're in philosophical texts, of course, the poetic tradition. 
was greatly indebted to Ibn Arabi. And um, it actually, Ayn um, al-Qazat and Ibn Arabi actually meet up in the Persian poetic tradition as well, where you have Ayn al-Qazat speaking theoretically about many of these ideas in Persian, and then Ibn Arabi's school articulating some of the same ideas in Arabic and then in Persian. And then you have poets like Raqi, who died in the 13th century, or Mahmoud Shibistari, who died in the following century, trying to bring them together now within the medium of, of the poetic tradition. And then so Persian poetry also um, is given a new life because of uh, the school of Ibn Arabi. Thanks. That's really remarkable and amazing. Uh, I mean, obviously, the later history of Sufism is so vast that it could be the subject yes. for its own series of podcasts. Right. So someone should really do that, Muhammad. Yes. <laughs> Just saying. Well, <laughs> uh, oh, we're taking hints. <laughs> right. Exactly. So um, thank you very much. You you also mentioned a lot of the things that I'll be getting on to look at. Uh, so philosophy in the Ottoman tradition in the Mughal period of India and in the, uh, especially, I guess, the Safavids. But uh, more approximately, next week I'll be moving on to something very different, which will actually be the ongoing tradition of logic in this period. So I hope the audience will join me for that. For now, I'll just thank you, Mohammed, for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. And please join me next time for the next installment of The History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps. Thank you.